Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis, and I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm vice chair of the BTOG steering committee. I hope by now that you know that this is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their field and we tackle the most important questions that we all face in the diagnosis and the treatment of thoracic cancers. It's important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not in any way have any input to the planning, content or delivery of anything that we discuss. Hello everyone and welcome to another BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsom Davis. I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital and today we're going to be talking about BRAF and this is the first of a number of podcast where I want to pick out on different mutations, um, perhaps the less common ones, the ones we don't see so frequently, but are more and more important as we have treatments available for them. Uh, and I'm delighted to be joined by an international figure, none less uh, than Jurishka Nadu. Jurishka is a, as you might imagine, friend and supporter of BTOC. Um, she's a medical oncologist and trained in Trinity College Dublin and did her training in Ireland, but then got lured across the, the pond to America, where she did fellowships at Memorial Stone Kettering and masters at Johns Hopkins, and then got lured back to the Emerald Isle, where she is a medical oncologist at Bowman Hospital. And in fact, I noticed Jessica, a professor of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland since last December. So many congratulations, Professor. Uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to our podcast. Great to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Great idea to, to share information on this important subset of patients. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting, BRAFs. So um, I'm going to put my hand up here and say I see very few patients with a BRAF V600E mutation. Um, so you're the expert in the room here. I'm going to rewind a bit and we're going to go back to basics and tell me what is BRAF? Um, in terms of what does it do in a cancer cell and what's its role, particularly in lung cancer? Yeah, so BRAF, um, which is relevant, obviously, across tumor types, uh, probably got most, uh, we've got most of our knowledge from the melanoma field, but now is applying to patients with lung cancer as well. So essentially, it is a, a 95 kilodalton serine threonine kinase. So it's oh, a <laughs> exactly. It's a protein that yeah. exists in the MAP kinase pathway. So the ras raf mac erk pathway, which is involved in a, a key oncogenic driver pathway that drives the growth and proliferation of cancer cells. Uh, one of BRAF is one of its intermediates, um, and it occurs downstream of RAS, but it can also signal independently of RAS. Um, and there are several different sort of permutations of how BRAF can act in this pathway. Um, and essentially, uh, we know that in melanoma, about 40% of patients with melanoma have a BRAF mutation called a BRAF V600 mutation. Um, in lung cancer, the incidence is far lower. So the incidence is around 3 to 4% of patients with lung cancer. And then in very interesting and important work from a very good researcher in, um, in the US, Ibiae Togogo Jack at um, uh, Mass General, she and others identified that BRAF mutations in lung cancer come in three different flavors, class one, class two, and class three. And essentially class one is this V600 group, and that can be V600E, K, many different subtypes. And that is sort of more like a traditional oncogenic driver. You know, one that happens in 
enriched in female Asian liver smokers and is associated with response to targeted therapy. Whereas yep. class two and three are a little different. Yeah. And we've known about these for a while because you, you mentioned in that introduction that our melanoma colleagues have been ahead of the game. They, they've known about this. They've targeted this. And in fact, we've known about BRAF as a, as a driver of cancer for a long time, but actually, as we'll get onto in a minute, so we won't spoil the show, um, our, our, our licensed treatment in lung cancer has been comparatively comparatively recent. Um, tell me a little bit about, so you talked about those three classes, and I think that's a really, really important thing. Just for those who perhaps are less familiar with the molecular genetic side, I mean, how could you not be? But those who are less familiar, when we talk about V600, for example, V600E, what, what does that mean? What, what is the V, what's the E, and what's the 600? Yeah, so really this tells us where the aberration is happening. So, so normally this is a change from a, a, a valine to a, you know, to, so different protein products that are being changed at a certain yeah. place in the codon. Yeah. And so this occurs at chromosome seven and okay. essentially it's the 600 codon and it is an exchange between the two. And usually that might imply some differences in response to therapy. We could get into a big quagmire about that, but I think what, what is good for, for those who are learning about this um, is to also be familiar with um, these oncogene databases. That can help us to understand these a little bit better. Yeah. So C-BioPortal, OncoKB, um, these are freely available databases and constructs that allow you to type in you know, lung cancer, BRAF, and all the different permutations and to show you the category level of data that supports the different uh, targeted therapies or other therapies that may be suitable for the different subclasses. So not trying to make anybody out there a molecular pathologist, but to give you the tools to yeah. be able to understand. I, how that's a really good point. Also, my cancer genome is a very good one. And I think you're right. If you don't know what it is, look it up, um, because why, why wouldn't you? Okay, so... Um, if you're going to get your molecular pathology report back and it says V600 something, then we're we're happy because there is going to be a targetable mutation we have something for, and we'll get onto that in a second. There are the class two, the class three changes for which are relevant in the cancer, but we don't currently have licensed treatments for them. Is that a fair thing to say? thing to say. I think another thing that's important to understand about class two and three is when we think about oncogenic driver mutations, generally we think uh, they are mutually exclusive, meaning if you have an EGFR sensitizing mutation, it is unlikely that you're going to have a co-occurring alteration somewhere else. Not saying it can't happen, but the incidence of a co-alteration is very, very rare. Um, yeah. This is not true of BRAF. So for class two and class three alterations, it is uh, co-alterations are, are seen, particularly in PIK3CA, NF1 in the, in the instance of class two. And in class three, about 50% of them will have co-occurring KRAS mutations. And often their KRAS is is sort of, you know, is a major driver too. So that that is a little bit different and something that can be confusing, you know, yeah. for, for folks who are ordering NGS testing and interpreting. Yeah. That. If in doubt, read it carefully. If you don't understand your report, phone your molecular pathologist, speak to a colleague, uh, don't be shy um, and make sure you know what you're treating. Okay, so you mentioned they're uncommon, three to 5%. Certainly in my patch, we get actually much less than that. Um who does get it? Is this um, adenos? Is this squames? Are these smokers, non-smokers? What might be your, your typical patient? 
Yeah, great question. So I think the, the class one mutation, the BRAF E600 mutations happen in those whom you typically associate with driver associated lung cancer. So generally female Asian never smoker is enriched in that population. Um, the uh, class twos and threes are in a more typical lung cancer population, male smoker adeno. So if you grouped all of the BRAFs together because there's more of the class two and with 50% or slightly more might be class two or three, it might appear that BRAF alterations in general happen in male smoker adenos, but it, it it depends on understanding that class. But in general, we should test or it should be customary to test for BRAF in our list of alterations for any non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. And would you ever chest, test in squamous patients? Is there any point in that? If you had a young, non-smoking squamous patient, would you test or is it so unlikely as to be a bit of a waste of everyone's time? So I think in, in you know, in the Asian, female Asian never smoker population, it would be important to do NGS, um, to do okay. a broad panel, and that generally will include BRAF. However, yeah. most of the times, if we're going to find an alteration in the squames, it's generally EGFR or ELK. I'm not yeah. aware of squames um, uh, having BRAF, but stand to be corrected. With the more yeah. NGS we do, hopefully we might be finding these unusual circumstances. Yeah. I agree. And the only one I've seen in a squame has been uh, Metex on 14. I've seen that in a, in a very small number of people. Yeah. Okay, so that tells a little bit who it's for. Um, but as you say, I think we would hope that most of us now are doing reflex molecular testing on our patients with an advanced or locally advanced um, non-squamous. How do we diagnose it? Um, is this immunohistochemistry? Is this um, NGS? What kind of NGS? What should our colleagues be making sure that they are requesting? Okay, so this is a, a genomic, a DNA-based genomic alteration. So we have the two standard ways to test for this would be when we do hotspot testing, where we test for an individual alteration, it's generally done by DDPCR, digital droplet PCR, individual testing for a gene. Um, or in a more sort of, uh, in a manner which allows us to be more efficient with tissue, which is always um, a, a key concern in patients with lung cancer where we don't get a lot of cells or a lot of DNA, then doing next generation sequencing is better because it allows us to test for alterations in a massive parallel way without minimizing the amount of tissue loss. So yeah. in instance, it would be next generation sequencing. There is some data for doing BRAF IHC. However, it, it is only, it's only been assessed in class one alterations. Okay. Um, so I think I have never seen it actually being used clinically. And I think in the context of, of, of how lung cancer is going, the use of NGS for the other relevant alterations, most of the time it's going to be DDPCR or NGS. And do we know, and I have no idea what the answer is, maybe you do, maybe you don't. We know, for example, with EGFR exon 20 insertion mutations that PCR is less good than yeah. NGS. You're going to miss rare variants. Do we have the same concern with PCR? And if we have colleagues who are, who inverted commas only have PCR based assays for their BRAF, sh should they be worried? Yeah, you know, I truthfully, I don't know. I don't think that there's been a, a large enough experience uh, published to be able to discern no, that. Um, so I, I don't know the answer to that one, but I would say uh, BRAF, there isn't as much knowledge necessarily of, you know, if I was doing an individual test and it came back negative, do I need to repeat? Yeah. I think if you're going to repeat in a never smoke, you're going to do the NGS anyway, and it might it might come yeah. up. And I must say, I, I, I do think that all of us, as a rule, should be pushing our um, colleagues in our departments to be doing NGS. Uh, it is clear that is a 
better approach, you will miss mutations, other mutations with it, with PCR-based assays. It's slower. Well, it's not necessarily slower, but you, do, you can also waste tissue. So, um, okay, so that's going to be on your DNA-based assays. Um, and we're going to make sure that when we see the results, we're going to talk to our colleagues if we have any uncertainty about it. So imagine a situation, you have your, your non-smoking patient, um, you found your uh, BRAF V600 something mutation. Um, our melanoma colleagues would be reaching for dibrafenib and trametinib together. DAB-TRAM is the, is, is the, is the abbreviation, it always makes me laugh. Um, do we use these? Um, what's, what's your view on DAB-TRAM for lung BRAF V600 mutations? So I'm a, I, I'm a somewhat rare beast in that I have had several patients with BRAF V600 alterations. This was from my former life at Hopkins. So I actually had five patients um, with this, which I think is somewhat unusual even in the yeah. US, to be honest. Um, and so I gave dibrafenib, trametinib to all of them. And I've ha I had, you know, anyway, this is my own- That, ma that makes you a world I expert. I mean, um, you're, you're yeah. basically right up there, yeah? <laughs> I appreciate, you know, this is this is just my experience. It might not be everybody's experience, but I, I cool. did have very good experience with it. I have one my one patient who still sends me a text every now and again, would you believe, is in a near CR. And this wow. is five years later, you wow. know, with metastatic disease. So uh, all of those patients actually had responses, some of variable duration. Um, I think uh, I'm certainly a believer. So where does this data come from? This came from a phase two study, David Planchard, Lancet Oncology. And then we know that the five-year data from that same phase two study um, was published in the JTO last year. And essentially the response rate is between 64 to 68%, depending on whether patients receive it in the treatment naive or the pre treated um, situation. Um, the most common toxicities, which is what this five-year patient um, who makes me smile, um, did have right in the beginning, and that was pyrexias. So, so pyrexia is definitely the most common toxicity uh, of this, and it could be attributed to the dibrafenib or the trametinib. So we had to do a little bit of um, dose reduction on both sides, but but got to, to a nice sweet spot and she she was you know she's been maintained on it for for a long time and similar experience with others. Um, I think what's very important to know here, just to drop that in, is this is still a subset of patients who may respond to immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. So there's a constant tug of war, push pull. Should I do the dibrafenib trametinib first? Do that? Should I do chemo IO followed by it? Um, I think you know in this circumstance, these patients may indeed respond to chemo IO. So chemo IO is not wrong, but I think when you sort of bought into that well this is targeted therapy for a target in lung cancer you see a target you want to treat the target and there is good data for treatment naive so in all of those patients i've given them dibrafenib trametinib first line and um, had good experience that is very interesting i'm going to touch back on on that immuno thing in a second because that just made me think of something um you've got obviously a, a super responder in your in your patient cohort and it's always fabulous to have those but she probably is a super responder by and large, what are we talking about efficacy? What's the broad response rate? What's the broad duration? Are we talking ozimertinib type EGFR levels of activity? Or are we talking about something more effective like ALK inhibitors or something less effective? What's your view? Yeah, I think we're, we're talking something slightly in between. <laughs> so the response rate for dibrafenib trametinib was, yeah, 64 to 68%. And that's, pretty, that's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Progression-free yeah. survival of about 10 months and overall survival of about 
you know, two years, and where you've got about about a quarter of patients alive at five years. So I think in general, very good. Um, and 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 in the EGFR type range, I would think, just that we don't see as yeah, many patients, so absolutely. many don't have as much experience with it. But I think the tolerability, it's just, this is just a muscle we need to learn to flex. Yeah. That, you know, we, we have to learn to get comfortable with dibrafenib, trametinib. I'm lucky, uh, the other tumor type I treat a small bit of is melanoma. So at least... I, I have a lot of experience with that and uh, comfortable with, with changing the doses around. And it's very similar in lung cancer. And it's, it's one thing that I often come across in my acute oncology work. Someone will come into A&E with pyrexias and the standard emergency department. And I'm not being critical of my colleagues because, of course, the number of drugs available is, is huge, will be immunotherapy you know, or, or chemotherapy associated neutropenic sepsis. And of course, they're not neutropenic. It isn't chemotherapy but they do have pyrexias. So this is common. And what you're saying in that situation is obviously you want to make sure they're not septic, but it's such a common side effect. You just tend to hold one drug and wait and restart, or do you hold both and wait and restart? What's the... So normally what I do is the most common offender that I've found is actually the trametinib, even though some of the data would suggest it's, it's dibrafenib. So normally I would hold the trametinib first, um, check that this is indeed the drug that's causing the yeah. problem and then and then institute a dose reduction of the yeah. trametinib. And then I do the same thing with dibrafenib after that. And usually we come to, uh, you know, a dose that suits the patient from there. Yeah. And away from the pyrexias, um, is this well tolerated? Are we talking GI side effects? Are we, do we have any concerns about, I don't know, pneumonitis or cardiac side effects? What's your experience? Yeah. So, so in general, GI, it appears to be nausea, vomiting, abnormal LFTs, sometimes a skin rash, some pedal edema. Um, pedal edema is probably the other one yeah. that I look, look out for, um, you know, most commonly. Um, but really the one that you, that those who of us who practice are going to see most commonly would be the pyrexias. Yeah. Um, and just to, I guess we're, very apposite for our website so i appreciate this may not be relevant to ireland and and um, other places in uh, elsewhere um the new nice guidelines which came out uh, about four weeks ago have finally recommended dabtram as a first line uh treatment for uh BRAF v600 mutated lung cancer um it's actually been available a little bit longer if you're wondering well that's not new i've had access to that we had access temporarily during covid as we uh, moved away from chemo but we now finally have that the nice approval which is which which is quite late because the data supporting its evidence as you rightly say was was quite a while ago yes. but it's now available to all and sundry near and far um so you touched upon that what you might do maybe as an alternative or after dabtram you said chemo io would be a very reasonable option and i and I, I agree completely we do have some uh, funding restrictions in the UK about who we can use chemo IO on, but actually a BRAF uh, mutation is not one of the limitations, so you can use that. Uh, imagine a scenario where you have a patient, your typical BRAF patient, who's got a PDL one of 100%. Um, are you going to throw in pembrolizumab or similar single agent immunotherapy as your first line treatment? Um, or should we be treating that high PDL one with equal caution as we do with EGFR and in fact selecting? a different treatment and probably a TKI. What's your... Yeah, so, so I think this goes back to the, the fundamental biology of the different alterations. So we know that class twos and threes 
happen more in those who may have smoked in their lives and with co-occurring RAS mutations. And in general, class two and three BRAF altered lung cancer has a high TMB. So yeah. you're dealing with a biologically different type of BRAF mutation. So the data for this comes from the Immunotarget Registry, which is a, a large French-based registry that examined the outcomes of immunotherapy in these different oncogene-addicted subsets. And essentially what they showed is that BRAF V600 alone, when you give immunotherapy alone, the median PFS is, is, is low, one, one, one and a half months or something like this. It's essentially it's futile. Exactly. Whereas yeah. class two and three, it was more typical, you know, five to six months. So I think, you know, IO alone in that sort of class of BRAF mutation can be entertained. Um, I think in those with BRAF B600 mutations, even if the PDL1 was high, I would be very wary of that. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. know that oncogenic drivers can constitutively yeah. upregulate PDL1. That hasn't been shown in the in the context of BRAF, but certainly in EGFR and ELK. So I would yes. definitely be wary of that. And this is a theme I, I we we often hear. We hear that in a lot of our educational things through BTOG, and I certainly hear it in clinics. You see someone in clinic, you go through the results, they've done their reading, and they want immunotherapy with their high PDL1, but you know they've got, for example, an EGFR mutation. I think it's important to stick to your guns and say. Immunotherapy is great for the right people, but it's useless for the wrong people. So I, I'd agree with you completely. I think no, with the V600s, I wouldn't use it. Single agent. Compensations can be hard to have. And for those yeah. who are listening out there, you know, uh, it's a double-edged sword, I would say. Yeah. You know, the, the immunotherapy getting, you know, getting good game out there is, is a good thing. It means people are more open to treatment, but also sometimes it does mean this nuance of which patients does it suit and also the perception of, well, this doesn't cause any toxicity at all. And then they get a dramatic IO toxicity. I think it's important to try to level the playing field when you talk to your patient when it comes to any treatment, but particularly immunotherapy because of yeah. public perception. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. So we're going to use our DAB tram first if we have access to it, and I hope all, all colleagues listening do. Um, after that has progressed and assuming there are no localized therapies, you'll be switching systemic treatment. Um, are you moving to platinum-based chemotherapy in, in some form, plus or minus immunotherapy? Would that be your, yes. your take? <clears throat> yes, I'd say in, in most cases, this is what I'll do. The other thing to say, actually, just to flesh out the the dibrafenib-trametinib or BRAFMIC uh, combination is a new phase two study was published only a couple of weeks ago in the JTO of the other BRAF-MIC combination, um, Encarafenib and Binimetinib. Yeah. This was a phase two trial that was led by Greg Riley at Sloan Kettering, um, also a phase two study of, of this combination and really just, you know, very similar agents, um, 98 patients, 59 treatment, 90, 39 pre-treated, and again, very similar, maybe, well, we don't want to overcall it, but slightly higher response rate, 75% treatment naive, 46% in the pre-treated population. So maybe increasing the, the argument for trying targeted therapy first. Um, importantly, the toxicities are slightly different. So here okay. we're seeing more nausea, more diarrhea. Diarrhea isn't really something you see with dibrafenib, trametinib. And, um, you know, in, in that example, there was one, you know, one fatality, actually an intracranial hemorrhage fatality, but um, just more fuel to the fire that dibrafenib yeah. or BRAF make inhibition first line is probably going to be the way to go. And in that study, and you, you read my mind because I was going to mention it to you because uh, it was presented at ASCO, in fact, uh, yeah. in, a month or two ago. Um, and I 
98 patients. I'm just reading off the screen in front of me. Um, I haven't got one of those photographic memories. 59 treatment naive and 39 previously treated. Of those previously treated, had any of those had DAB tram as their treatment before? Or were they oh, all TKI naive? I don't know that off by heart. My sense is they were all treatment naive. Um, okay. I think they had chemo or chemo IO first line, but I, right. I I'll check that. Yeah. No, I don't know if that's off the top of my head either. Um, yes, and I, I think it's very important that that because that's that was a registration study that came out, and it it is a different uh, combination, different uh, options we have for these patients. That remains unlicensed, and it, I guess it remains the case that still, when you now progress on DABTRAM, you will be going for chemo, chemo IO, then moving yeah. down towards taxanes outside of other clinical trial options. Do we? have or do you have a handle on brain mets and BRAF? Should we be as concerned about it as we are, for example, with with ALK? Um, should we be screening differently? And do we have any data on activity of these targeted drugs against the brain? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> My understanding is from that very first Blanchard study, I think there were only four patients with brain mets. So our understanding of how these drugs work in the brain is very limited. Um, the the incidence of brain mets, my understanding is, is more common in the class two and three uh, population than in the class one. Um, but in terms of response, very little data out there. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I think it's always good with anyone... Uh, with a mutation-driven disease to, to do your cranial imaging. Um, I know it's a little contentious and some people very reasonably say, well, would you want to know? But I think you can do so much, it's important to know. Um, and I think we would say to our colleagues, keep an eye, even if you haven't got brain metastases, or sorry, the patient hasn't got brain metastases, then be doing your routine MRIs to keep an eye if, if you can do that. I just had a quick squiz whilst you were talking there at that uh, that data we mentioned them uh, the, the new um combination uh with encorafenib and bimetinib and all the prior treated patients had not had a yeah. uh, braf targeting drug so we don't really have any data yet on targeted braf drugs after targeted braf drugs at the moment is That's my understanding true. yes um okay um what um do we have anything new on the horizons i mean we have these um non v600 mutations are people exploring drugs for these um will they just always be the also rans you know you'll, you'll as you say the the, the class 3a uh, mutations you're going to see when someone's actually got a cancer driven by kras um so we might be ignoring them are, are there other options that you may be aware of or products in development Yes, so there are there are several agents, but they're very much an early phase clinical trial. So so there are there are phase one studies of dedicated um, agents for the B, uh, for, for class two and class three. Okay. But they're all some of them are mouse models, some of them are phase yeah. one. So so nothing quite at, at the level that um, you know we're going to change what we do, but no. certainly um, th there are agents in development. The other area that I think is important to highlight is how does this factor into stage three? So yes. um, <clears throat> that's something that's come up for me a couple of times where yeah. incidentally I found a patient has a BRAF altered stage three. And do I want to give DERVA in the adjuvant setting? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and 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 that is that's a tricky one. Um, to be honest with you, I have in the class two and threes adopting the same paradigm as the stage four paradigm that these are really more, yes. uh, you know, a typical, you know, kind of a lung cancer. And I'm going to give the derva anyway. In in the the V600 population, it's a little bit more of a discussion with the patient. In my experience, I've had one or two of these. In, in yeah, I don't know. I seem to have a BRAF target on my forehead, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, and in those instances, I actually gave it as well, and the patient did okay. Um, but there is a, a good paper, um, Rudiewicz and colleagues, European Journal of Cancer, from a from a year or two ago, examining the responses to DERVA in the stage three population that includes some of the BRAFs. And that's the only data I've actually seen published on it. So and there's so little, I isn't there? Because they were, if you look at the exclusion criteria of those studies, BRAF wasn't as an exclusion criteria. The only exclusion criteria was EGFR and ALK back in those days. Yes, um, exactly. I guess their smoking history may also be relevant if you had your patient with a BRAF mutation, but they smoked a lot. You might be more inclined to go down the adjuvant immuno route. And if there are never smoking V600E, mutation then perhaps you wouldn't yeah that could certainly factor into it the, the thing with v600 is that half of the, you know some may still be smokers yeah. it's enriched in the never smokers for sure but you can still get a v600 smoker yeah that's a good point. and, that, and yeah. that would be tricky i would say and i guess it's, it's to have a, an open discussion saying well we can go down this route there may be less of activity and i think as long as everyone is aware of the pros and cons of what you're doing. I think that's very, that's very reasonable. Um, okay. I think that probably brings us to all things BRAF considered. Um, my summary would be make sure you are doing proper NGS on your patients. Make sure as much as you can, you have your results before making your treatments. If you've got a patient with a BRAF V600 mutation, be reaching for your dab tram at the moment that's the only licensed combination um but uh keeping eye out for new data and new stuff coming through um and if you're unsure about your mutation look it up on the internet speak to your molecular biology colleagues and if you do have someone on dab tram they're going to get some pyrexias make sure that they know what to do and make sure that your colleagues know what to do when they phone up at three in the morning uh with their with their pyrexias um thank you very much Jerusha. that was a tour de force uh we're hitting just under 30 minutes which is the perfect timing because that's when my attention span begins to wane so i will thank you very much for your contribution uh just to remind uh people listening that there's a number of different uh, podcasts on the uh btog website but also wherever you get your podcasts from as they say uh going back for almost a, a year and a half now so do listen to some of those we will be recording another couple in the near future focus on other rare mutations and we hope you can join us then. Jeriska, thank you very much indeed. Thanks Tom, great to be here.